I know what you're thinking. <clears throat> He's gone mad. He's lost his marbles. Here we come to a lecture called The Poetry of Earth, and he's playing the ballet music from Aida. You're right. I have gone a bit, bit mad, and I'm playing the ballet music from Aida. It's my last lecture, and I hate the fact that it's my last lecture, so I feel entitled to be a little mad, because giving these lectures to you has become a way of life, and it's hard to give it up. So I warn you, this is going to be a long one. If you think the other lectures were long, you've got another thing coming, as my mother used to say. But I have not lost my marbles, because I have a perfectly serious question to ask you about this piece. Is this what you'd call sincere music? Did Verdi write it out of a genuine need for self-expression? Of course, you'll argue that's an unfair question. You can't pretend to pass judgment on an Italian writing phony Egyptian ballet music. But, what about this? <clears throat> this is really Verdi's bag, isn't it? But is it sincere, or is it just to show off the tenor? And what about this? Girl, you really got me now. You got me so I can't sleep at night. Is that sincere? And how about this Mozart cadenza? <laughs> is that sincere music? Is it written only to show off the pianist? And as a matter of fact, how sincere is Parsifal? There he sat, Richard Wagner, in all his sybaritic splendor, in a dressing gown of the finest silk brocade, in a room scented with rare perfumes and hung with the most sensuous fabrics, composing this penitential tale of the saintly fool. Is that a picture of sincerity? It certainly doesn't seem to be. But the fact is that every one of these pieces I've referred to is, in its own way, sincere. Now, how can this be? Now, I'm plaguing you with this question because it's been plaguing me ever since the last lecture, while I've been thinking about Stravinsky and the other side of the great split. You remember my telling you about Theodor Adorno's book, The Philosophy of Modern Music, in which he contrasts Schoenberg and Stravinsky? in that great split. If you do, you may recall that he sees all modern music as a split between the two of them, each heading up a movement hostile to the other, with Schoenberg leading the righteous up the true and righteous path, while Stravinsky was all deception and trickery, a veritable child of Satan. Now, why is Adorno so exercised over this 20th century dichotomy, which, as we discovered through Ives' unanswered question, is basically a split between the tonal and the non-tonal. Well, it's a lot more than that to him, because it evokes the whole question of sincerity. And by sincerity, he means direct expression of feeling, subjective, from the heart. And for him, the only way to continue that great sincere Wagnerian line, die heilige deutsche Kunst, was via the Schoenbergian route. And not just through Schoenberg's early romantic 
music, but through all his works, tonal, atonal, and serial, against which he counterposes Stravinsky's cold intellectuality, his rejection of expressiveness as mere heart-on-sleeve sentimentality, his over-elegant stylism, and so on, which for Adorno meant everything vacuous and meretricious. Of course, what he's really talking about is the relationship of art and artificiality. How artificial can art be and still be art? Well, it varies from one age to another, from one stylistic period to another, from one culture to another. But wherever or whenever, art always has and still does involve the application of certain artifices. An artist is always to some degree an artisan, right? To be artistic is to be artful, which makes it impossible to present a clear black and white case such as Adorno's, where genuine art is that expression which is subjective and sincere, and all else is artificial, hence false. But art's more subtle than that and much more interesting. If we look at a Cimabue Madonna, for instance, fully understanding why he painted the head on the diagonal, that it's an old Byzantine trick or whatever, are we any the less moved by the painting? Are we one whit less thrilled by Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill because we know the traditional Welsh syllabic count line by line? Not one whit, couldn't care less. Fernhill flies, blessings on the artifices that give it wings, on all artifices that make emotions aesthetically presentable and intelligible, whether they be plain old rhythm and rhyme or the most complex manipulations of a 12-tone row. In fact, it would be easy to make out a case that the 12-tone row is the most artificial device of the whole 20th century, being a concept that fights innateness. You know what that means by now. And that therefore the whole 12-tone system is one huge artificiality. Now, I have no intention of making out any such case because it would be pointless and at least as untrue as Adorno's case against Stravinsky, whom he considers the apostate, the heretic, the devilish conjurer with a bag of tricks. But it was precisely this Stravinsky, this very child of Satan, bag of tricks and all, who appeared like an angel of deliverance just in time to lead the great rescue operation, the huge project of saving tonality in those critical years before World War I. See, the death of Mahler in 1911 and of Debussy shortly thereafter seemed like curtains. It was as though they had taken tonal music along with them to the grave. But resuscitation was at hand, and even as Schoenberg was renouncing tonality, Stravinsky was glorifying it in a piece called The Firebird. And while Schoenberg was dedicating himself to saving music by continuing that great subjective tradition, the chromatic, romantic tradition, Stravinsky, on the other hand, was presiding over a wholly new movement, heralding a brilliant new group of composers, all of whom stood ready to breathe life into what looked like a moribund situation. Now, Adorno would say, aha, artificial respiration, merely a temporary expedient. So what? What's so bad about a temporary rescue operation that lasted a good half century? And what the great Igor did over that 40-some year period was to keep tonality fresh by one means or another. 
Now, again, Adorno would say that he kept it fresh by refrigeration, thus freezing the life out of it. And that would be a hostile way of describing what was actually true, namely, a new objectivity, a cleaner, cooler, slightly refrigerated kind of expression, which was the result of placing the creative self at a respectful distance from the created object, taking a more removed perspective on music. Now, I've just used two words that may seem to be mutually exclusive, objectivity and expression. Can something be both objective and expressive? Is there such a thing as objective expressivity? Is this aesthetically possible? Well, it not only is, but always has been, and has produced some of the most beautiful music of all history, medieval, baroque, classical, and modern, not the least of which is the music of Igor Stravinsky. Now, at the moment Stravinsky entered the musical scene, this objective expressivity was already in the air. It seemed not only right, but absolutely essential, necessary. Because this new attitude of personal disinvolvement was a predictable reaction against the heavy, almost subjective, almost morbid subjectivism that had informed Germanic music from Wagner to Schoenberg. And this reaction flourished centrally in Paris. Paris was now the new locus, and as early as the turn of the century, before even 1898, the startlingly simple voice of Eric Satie could already be heard, utterly dégagé, casually delivering musical objects, purposefully avoiding what was then known as self-expression. No self-expression. A musical object. There's a striking parallel here with the advent of similarly anti-romantic attitudes in Picasso's art of painting, for example, an attitude that also shows up at the same time in writing. Think only of Cocteau. In fact, it was Satie, Picasso, and Cocteau who all collaborated in 1917 on a mad, scandalous ballet called Parade, in which every possible anti-Wagnerian device was exploited to the hilt. And perhaps I should say anti-subjective or anti-romantic device, because I don't want to cast aspersions on the great Richard. Uh, perhaps even anti-bourgeois, not to cast aspersions on the great Karl. And uh, this is what made it seem anti-sincere, especially to the bourgeoisie. Because to many people, Parade seemed frankly anti-art. And it was, in the sense of being opposed to that ponderous, overblown, self-obsessed art of the late 19th century. But in this sense, Parade must be said to be sincere art, no less sincere in its loony way than the ballet music from Aida I was playing before. Like this ragtime from Parade.
completely sincere triviality, but sincere. This is mere whimsy, you must understand, compared to what anti-art could be. At its most extreme, it was Dadaism. It was kidding art and kidding the public along with it. Épater les bourgeois, that was the slogan. The score of Parade, for instance, contains such divine musical innovations as the rattle of a typewriter and, uh, and an amplified puddle, whatever that sounds like. <laughs> Lots of things like that. And there are a lot of that sort of thing around these days, which makes me think that present-day Dadaists and anti-Artniks are probably the most conservative, even reactionary element on the present cultural scene. <laughs> but our scene does not, alas, contain a Stravinsky in it. Stravinsky was then the genius on the spot, the precisely right man at the right hour, the man who could make aesthetic objectivity work, who could produce beautiful music out of it. Even in such dynamic and emotional works as Petrushka and Le Sacre du Printemps, he keeps a certain distance. The composer is now not expressing himself anymore, his inner conflicts or his psychic geography. He is rather contemplating a world to which he is affectively attached, as Stravinsky was with deep love to the specific world of a Russian carnival, for instance, as in Petrushka, or to the dream world of a pagan Russia, as in Le Sacre, contemplating those worlds and recording musically what they expressed to him. And the resulting music is then a kind of aesthetic document, unromanticized and objective presentation. You can feel it instantly with the first notes of Petrushka. This is not Stravinsky we are hearing, but an aspect of Russian life, you understand, recorded in Stravinsky's personal language. In other words, it is Stravinsky once removed, objective. And as the music goes on with hurdy-gurdies and calliopes and the ballerina's toy waltz and the trained dancing bear and the puppet's dance and all the rest of them. Object is added to object and the music becomes correspondingly more and more objectified. Even in the most emotional moments, such as uh, Petrushka's sadness, Even here, that sense of objectivity is maintained. It's so touchingly mechanical. You see, the more mechanically and pitilessly Stravinsky presents it, the more moving it is to us. Or take Petrushka's despair. Same thing, objective as a bugle call, but full of despair. And the same is true of Le Sacre, the Rite of Spring, that marvelous opening. Comes to us from a great distance. And Stravinsky brings it close to us, but he himself, the ego of Igor, remains at a respectful distance. And that's why the Adornos of this world cannot see him as a sincere artist.
because a sincere composer should express his emotions directly, subjectively, like Schubert saying, Du bist die Ruhe. That's how Wagner did it, and thus Schoenberg as well. But Stravinsky, can you imagine Stravinsky saying, Ich liebe dich, just like that? Out of the question, he was much too much of the great artificer. What were these artifices of his? What exactly was he carrying in that conjurer's bag of tricks? Well, they were simply those bigger and better ambiguities I promised you last time, those constantly freshening fresheners of tonality, which kept it alive and kept musical progress constantly on the move. Now, for our purposes, the clearest and most concise way to see these tonality fresheners is via the three linguistic modes we've been following throughout these lectures, namely phonology, syntax, and semantics. Remember? Now, obviously, the big phonological strides are to be found in the sharp increase of what used to be called, what used to be called dissonance. In other words, Stravinsky's kind of tonality has acquired some striking new additives, a new dissonantal freedom. But what does this new free dissonance mean? Is it simply an arbitrary use of wrong notes for shock value? Well, certainly not, although the shock element was undeniably a part of this rescue operation. Remember the old battle cry, et les bourgeois. But the origins of the new dissonance were much more basic than that and far more serious, premeditated, and organized. As briefly as I can put it, there are two ways of understanding the new dissonance. First, as an expansion of the triadic idea, so that a triad could now be thought of as a seventh chord, for instance, or a ninth chord, or a chord of the eleventh, or of the thirteenth, all making for new tonal dissonances. That's why that Petrushka puppet da dance sounds the way it does, right? just an extension of triads. But there's a second key to this increase of dissonance to be found in the new concept of polytonality, that is, employing more than one tonality at a time. It's as though tonalism could be saved and freshened by a sort of mitosis, by splitting any given harmony into two or more different and simultaneous ones. And if there are two, two tonalities, it's called bitonality, and if more than two, it's called polytonality, simple. Now, musicologists are always pointing to a specific chord in Petrushka as the primal statement of bitonality because it's so clearly analyzable and so dramatically effective. It's this famous chord, which again is only two simple triads, pure triads this time, C major and F sharp major. How pure they may be, taken separately, but we know something about that C-F-sharp relationship, don't we? Something that instantly explains and clarifies the particular ambivalence of this chord, namely the tritone, that diabolos in musica interval on which you're all experts by now, because it's the same tritone we found in Debussy's Fawn, you remember? and in fact on which the whole piece was constructed. 
And we also found it last time, if you remember, to be a crucial element in Alban Berg's violin concerto. You remember those last four notes of the tone row? Which then appeared in the quoted Bach chorale? Wrong. Sorry, the harmony's wrong. <laughs> Better. And here is that tritone again, serving a whole new purpose now on these notes to provide that unstable tritonic relationship between two absolutely pure triads, this and this, thus producing a marvelously distinct ambiguity, a perfect musical evocation of the duality in the puppet Petrushka himself, that bundle of sticks and rags concealing a passionate human heart. But bitonality doesn't only serve the exclusive function of producing dualisms. We must also recognize the obvious fact that the combination of two different chords automatically creates a third one, a wholly new phonological entity. For instance, what are those famous primitive boom-booms in the rite of spring near the beginning? Now, is that just arbitrary banging, letting the fingers fall where they may? On the contrary, that repeated chord is carefully devised and structured through bitonality. Look how clearly divisible it is into two separate but equal subsidiary chords, one superimposed on the other. And each of them, mind you, is perfectly consonant in itself. The lower one spells out a pure E major triad, or in Stravinsky's orthography, F flat, as you can see, which amounts to the same thing. And the upper chord is a plain old dominant seventh on E flat. Now, each one by itself couldn't be more clearly tonal, right? But together, wild dissonance. Now, this is a wholly new way of looking at tonal harmony, a fresh Stravinskyan way. He then plunges directly into a new bitonality, this time pitting notes of the E-flat seventh chord, the same one, against notes belonging to C major. And together they sound like this. But there's something else going on at the same time. The cellos are plucking notes that outline that old E major triad so that there are now three simultaneous harmonic entities sounding together. This is now the sound of polytonality. I can't do all that with only two hands, so let's hear it on tape. Another fresh sound, you see, acerbic, needling, like a cold shower, but still and always tonal. Now, of course, polytonality can and does get even more complicated than the mere family gathering of two or three tonal relatives. Do you know that masterpiece from World War I called The Story of a Soldier? L'Histoire du Soldat, a chamber ballet for seven instruments. If you don't know it, run, don't walk to your nearest record shop and grab it. It's the best cold shower of all. Uh, here's the first phrase of that of the march that opens Histoire du Soldat. Now that's a bit more subtle, polytonally speaking, 
because there are two instruments playing, as you can see, a cornet and a trombone. Now, the cornet by itself is playing this. Now, that seems to start in F major, right? And suddenly switches to F minor. And cadences abruptly in a totally unexpected E major. Now listen to the whole phrase, which, by the way, starts on a silent downbeat, just to ambiguify us a little further. One. So, F major, followed by F minor, followed by E major, all in the space of four seconds. Now let's see what the trombone is doing down below. One. D flat major, of all things with its abrupt cadence in G major, without so much as a by your leave. So Stravinsky has presented us, take it or leave it, with four seconds of music that encompass five different keys. Talk about bigger and better ambiguities. something new, a new ambiguity, a new tonality freshener, only now it's a syntactic one, rhythmic displacement. Did you notice how syntactically broken up that marching tune is, how asymmetrical it is? We might say that this Discontinuity of rhythm is a metrical or syntactic counterpart of the polytonality we'd been talking about. You understand? We might even call it rhythmic dissonance. My old friend Harold Shapiro used to call it Igor's asymmetry racket, meaning affectionately, of course, in fact, adoringly, that Stravinsky had de developed asymmetrical procedure into an art of its own. Where would any Stravinsky piece be without asymmetry? Early works or late works, they all display this revivifying new art. And now that we're in the syntactic department, we can use strong Chomskyan linguistic language again. What Stravinsky does is to take those transformational procedures we discovered weeks ago in Mozart, remember the G minor symphony? Those deep structure deletions and the like, and makes them into new surface structures of their own. It's very much like the cubistic procedures of Braque or Picasso, who see an object through a prism, as it were, and exhibit the resulting optical fragmentation bit by asymmetrical bit. And just so with Stravinsky. All those once hidden deletions and permutations are now on brilliantly lit display right up there on the surface. Let's hear it. While you're in that record shop, you might as well stock up on Les Nos, 
which is maybe Stravinsky's greatest work, except for 10 or 12 others. That's how it is with Stravinsky's music. It's like Schubert's songs or Mozart piano concertos. Whichever one you're listening to is the greatest one of all. You listen to the Symphony of Psalms. Of course, it's his greatest work, maybe the greatest of the century. And then you listen to Le Sacre du Printemps, same thing. Ah, but Oedipus Rex. What about Thraney? You forgot Histoire des Soldats. It's always the same thing, the greatest. And so it is also with Les Nos. The Wedding, a combination choral cantata ballet about a Russian peasant wedding, which I can't tell you about, defies description. Just go listen to it. But let me play a snatch of the opening scene for you, a strangely cruel and hurtful music that accompanies the ritual braiding of the young bride's hair by her girl companions. Now, what makes that so barbarously cruel? It's the same bitonality as in the Sacre example, this one, only with the tonalities exchanged. Instead of this dissonance, it's this one. And this acid dissonance is mirrored in the rhythmic dissonance of the irregular meters. You see how this sharply accentuated distortion of meter adds to the feeling of cruelty and pain just as strongly as did the bitonal dissonance. And exactly like that barbaric passage in Le Sacre, where every accent comes at you like a body blow, always hitting when you least expect it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Left hook, right jab. Of course, these asymmetries are not at all limited to Stravinsky's so-called aggressive works. They can be found just as strikingly in his gentlest, most lyrical pieces, such as Persephone, or the much later Scène de Ballet, like this simple little passage from Scène de Ballet. I love this. Sounds almost like Mozart, doesn't it? But there's a significant difference between the asymmetries of Mozart and of Stravinsky. The difference, and what a difference, is between phrase structure and motivic structure. Now, I know that's pretty dense language, but I mean by it a very simple thing, that Stravinsky's asymmetrical structures are mainly based on the juggling of motives rather than what you ordinarily think of as melody. In other words, he doesn't juggle themes but motives. And by motives, I mean simply very brief melodic fragments, concise formations of two notes or three or four notes, which are then subjected to a kind of cubistic treatment, as again in Le Sacre du Printemps. Now, here's a motive, let's call A. Now, here's another motive we'll call B. Now, look how he juggles them. A, B, A, B, A, 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 B, A, A, B, A, B. Again, left to the jaw, right to the belly. 
But that's as nothing compared to the great sacrificial dance at the end of the ballet, the supreme brutality of all time. Brutal it may be, but fashioned with the precision of a master craftsman, artisan. Remember what we said about artisans. Fashioned out of tiny motivic cells, fragments like this, and like this, and like this. And all these cells are conjoined, embedded, permuted, expanded, and relentlessly repeated, always in different patterns, like jagged pieces of colored glass in some gigantic kaleidoscope. Listen. That's Igor's asymmetry racket, in full glory. Now, remember, if uh, you're not deafened and you can still hear me, remember we found these rhythmic asymmetries to be syntactic equivalents, so to speak, of phonological dissonance. You remember? And in the same way, we can find a further syntactic equivalent with polytonality itself. And this syntactic equivalent is called polyrhythm. Another shot in the arm for tonality, another life preserver. What are polyrhythms? Well, simply what they suggest. Just as polytonality means more than one tonality at a time, so polyrhythms mean two or more rhythms going at the same time. For instance, if I start a tango rhythm in the left hand and superimpose a waltz on it, We've got a simple polyrhythmic piece, right? Now let's jump from that idiocy to great music, back to the sock. Here's that fantastic page of sock, which is all by itself a whole essay on polyrhythm. The meter, as you can see, I hope, is 6-4, meaning six quarter notes to a bar. But there's not a bar on this page that has anything to do with a sextuple rhythm or sextuple rhythm, depending on which dictionary you read. It belongs to every note of music on that page belongs to groupings of two, four, or eight beats. It's all conceived duply in multiples of two. But the number six, you will say, rightly, is both duple and triple. Six is, after all, two times three, right? Where does the three come in? Well, you can imagine the enormous complexity of the mathematical mishigas and turmoil that results from all this. Let me try to explain it as easily as I can. There are two sets of rhythms embedded one within the other. Not two rhythms, but two sets of rhythms. Now, let's call the first one set A. It contains only groupings of fours and eights superimposed on this basic meter of six. Now, the main melody 
which uh, isn't as much a melody as a motive, as I explained before, is this scary fanfare in the tubas announcing the arrival of the sage. One, two, three, four, 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 two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. Sorry. As you can hear, this is a primitive repeated motto in a regular pattern of four beats, right? Superimposed, remember, over a meter of six. Then, that tune is em tune, whatever you want to call it, is embellished by high shrieking trumpets also following the four beat pattern. One, two, three, four, 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 and so on, over and over. And against all this, the horns in their highest register are screaming out a counter fanfare in eight beats. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four. So far, so good, right? These elements are all rhythmical blood brothers, fours and eights, even though they ride over sextuple bars. But all that makes only one set. Now let's have a go at set B, which contains groupings also of twos and fours, but not superimposed over the meter of six, but operating within it, within each separate bar of six beats. Are you still with me? Just cast an eye on the percussion section alone, where all this set B is happening. There's the timpani pounding away in a steady cannonade of eighth notes, making, needless to say, 12 of them per bar, right? Each bar has six beats. One, two, three, four, five, six. And the timpani's going one. That's 12 notes. And these 12 notes are demarcated into four subgroups by a specially violent accent on the first note of each group, like this. One. Now, you hear four bangs per bar. One, two. You hear them? That makes four subgroups of three eighth notes each. And mind you, those four subgroups are contained within a six-beat bar. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four. You hear the four bangs? Did you hear me count six? That's a polyrhythm all by itself. But to reinforce these inflammatory counter-rhythms, this electrifying stuff that's going on, to reinforce it, there are the bass drum and tam-tam alternately whacking out the four accents, right? One, two, one, two, one, two, in twos. One, two, one, two. And just to top it off so that you're all but out of your skin with polyrhythmic ecstasy, there's a guiro, a kind of rasp such as you hear in Latin American dance bands, right? You know those things? which further reinforces the four accents, but more than that, doubles them, so there are now eight notes per bar. That's eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So what have we got now? We've got a bar with six basic beats in it, right? Six beats a bar. One, four, against 12, which is really four, which is also eight. I haven't got enough feet and hands to do all those, but that's... All that's only set B. Add to it 
all those superimposed fours and eights of set A, and man, you've got yourself some polyrhythms. Listen. That page of music is 60 years old, but it's never been topped for sophisticated handling of primitive rhythms, not by the Kinks, and not by Buddy Rich, and not by Mahavishnu, and not even by the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Now, this primitivism, which inhabits Le Sacre and Les Nos and so many other Stravinsky works, Boy, these hands hurt from all that pounding. Uh, is manifested, this primitivism is manifested not only phonologically by those savage dissonances, and not only syntactically by those convulsive rhythms, but also semantically by the primitive meanings of the folk music, which is the lifeblood of these works. Folk music, don't forget that. This is one very obvious sense in which Stravinsky's music can be understood as poetry of earth. These pieces are deeply rooted in the earth of folk lore, at times seeming to reach back even further than traditional folk music, reaching atavistically back to prehistory. There's a hypnotically primeval feeling to the opening notes of Les Nos, for example. Let's hear it. That sounds like ancient Chinese music, doesn't it? But it's even earlier than that because it's not even a pentatonic scale. It's made of even more primitive three-note and four-note constellations. And in the same way, this incantation from Le Sacre du Printemps, listen. Three notes, four notes. These pieces are in themselves like Essays on monogenesis, they evoke responses in us that seem somehow to demonstrate the universality of our human origins. Further, I suggest that this fiercely cherished bond that Stravinsky had with ancient folklore contributes largely to that special objectivity which we found to characterize all his musical expression because it's part of that respectful distance we were speaking of, no matter how wild and primitive it gets. You see, the folk element naturally places great emphasis on the mythic, what Jung called the collective unconscious, which makes these early Stravinsky works like immense anthropological metaphors. But the most striking semantic effect of all this primitivism results from the utterly modern sophistication with which it's treated. There's an exciting friction going on here of conflicting forces. After all, here's a thoroughly 20th century composer writing prehistoric music. Now, that's a glorious misalliance, producing glorious offspring, a synthesis of earthy vernacular embedded in stylistic sophistication. And this synthesis 
was going to be a strong conditioning factor in all of Stravinsky's music throughout his composing life, even long after he stopped writing these so-called Russian works. Because it wasn't only the Russian vernacular that attracted him, but all vernaculars, old and new, an international street language, so to speak, which ultimately included jazz, cafe music, and salon music with all their attendant waltzes, polkas, foxtrots, tangos, and rags. Now, here was yet another department of fresheners for tonality to keep it alive, letting some fresh air into a stuffy post-Victorian room, a totally different air, chemically different from that other planetary air, that Luft von anderem Planeten, that Schoenberg was breathing at the same time, if you recall. But on Stravinsky's planet, people now spoke in the vernacular. Aesthetic life could be relaxed, free, facile, fun. Imagine, fun. Now, this new aesthetic relaxation caught on like wildfire. So attractive was the sheer relief of it. It was going to produce pieces like this delectable souvenir of Brazil by uh, Darius Mio. And the point to note is not only that it's bitonal, the left hand being in G and the right hand in D, but that it is a Parisian speaking the Brazilian vernacular. Beautiful. Sorry. Now listen to this. See how beautiful bitonality can be? one vernacular, right? A Frenchman in Rio. Now, here's an American, <clears throat> Aaron Copeland, speaking his own lingo. Now, again, the point is not only that this bit of Billy the Kid is polyrhythmic, which it is, but that it is in the American language and the cowboy vernacular to boot. And now here's another Parisian, Poulenc, Francis Poulenc, talking his own lingo. That's the famous little waltz from his opera, Les Mamelles de Tiresias. And the vernacular this time is, of course, straight out of Montmartre. Even some Germans are going to be affected by this dose of fresh air. Here's one of them named uh, Kurt Weil. Und der Haifisch, der hat Zähne und die trägt im Gesicht you all know where that comes from, to tell you. But Stravinsky thought of it first, as usual. In the period of World War I, 
He was already writing his phenomenal Histoire du Soldat, in which that unique objectivity of his showed itself in dry, witty takeoffs of folk tunes and marches and cabaret dances. Listen to this march from Histoire du Soldat. Follow this. Now listen to this tango. Now listen to this ragtime from the same piece. can see how the transformation of these frivolous, lightweight materials through Stravinsky's diamond-sharp intellect and sophisticated techniques produced a music of unprecedented freshness, wit, and humor. Humor, there's another source of fresh air, another deep breath for tonality. And Stravinsky had humor to spare. He knew how to make the most of it musically. Only think of the enormous range of his humor, from Histoire through the needle-sharp wittiness of the octet in 1923, or the Chaplin-esque boulevardier elegance of the capriccio for piano and orchestra, to the outright mockery of the circus polka that he wrote for the balletic talents of Ringling Brothers' elephants. But the fascinating thing for us to note about Stravinsky's wit is the way in which it results from mismatched semantic components. Now, I suppose all humor does, in a way. Jokes feed on what is incongruous, on incongruities. Those same dissonances that make the sacre so barbaric are also responsible for the wrong note sort of joke that tickles us so in Histoire du Soldat that we just heard. Let's hear some more. It's like the snark being a boojum, if you happen to know that poem. It's Groucho being the prime minister of Fredonia. It's incongruous. Or to use serious linguistic terms, it's the result of ill-matched semantic components. Chomsky himself gives a classic example of this. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Now that sentence is phonologically perfect, syntactically impeccable, and semantically impossible. It's verbal salad, except, if you recall, except as poetry. Poetically, it's perfectly acceptable, even witty or ironic, maybe even sort of beautiful, especially as 20th century poetry. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Isn't that pretty? Uh, I could even make a prose deep structure for that line, 
as I did weeks ago for that Shakespeare sonnet, if you recall, which could go something like this. Uh, last night, I slept badly. My usually colorless dreams were invaded by sort of dirty green ideas which caused me to sleep fitfully and to toss furiously. And there you are. The transformations are very simple. Delete all prosy elements such as narrative sequences and all connectives such as and and which. Condense, sleep and toss, embed fitfully within furiously. And then the only remaining problem is that the ideas are now sleeping instead of me. But delete the causal factor, as one does always in dreams anyway, and you've got a dream image, a line of poetry born of metaphorical transformations. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. What makes the whole thing possible is the basic implication of the dream. Once that's implied, everything else works on that non-realistic, hence aesthetic, level. And this is a very valuable linguistic clue to our understanding not only of contemporary poetry with all its colorless green ideas, but of contemporary music as well with all its colorless green ideas, Stravinsky's above all, which thrives on that very kind of wit and irony. Very important, this ironic element. It becomes a concept essential to our understanding of Stravinsky, especially as his music developed stylistically from the so-called Russian works on. Just think of the Sacre. Imagine that you'd written the Sacre, that world-shaking, epic-making super piece. Where could Stravinsky go from there? Don't forget, this was back in 1913, and he went on composing for another half century. Where were the bigger and better ambiguities to come from now? Those ever-refreshing gusts of bracing air that were supposed to keep tonality alive. Okay, Les Nos, Histoire du Soldat, more masterpieces. Then what? And what of his tonal colleagues scrabbling around in an orgy of haphazard modernisms? There had to be some great save, some definitive, durable preservative for tonal music, a topper to this Operation Rescue. And Stravinsky, of course, found it in the concept we know as neoclassicism. And this was the concept that could finally impose some aesthetic order on this modernistic chaos. Neoclassicism. What is it and why is it such a saving grace in our century? I wish I could assume that we all shared a single concept of what constitutes the neoclassic in art. Webster's no help. He defines it as the revival or adaptation of the classical style, especially in literature, art, or music, unquote. Well and good, but which classical style? So many periods of cultural history have considered themselves neoclassic, which we now regard as anything but. Even artists of the Renaissance thought of themselves as neoclassicists, both the Italian and the Elizabethan, on the grounds that they were inspired by the rediscovery of the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome. But we'd never call Da Vinci or Shakespeare neoclassicists, would we? So let's accept the term perforce in its broadest sense by identifying as classical any forms or styles regarded as classical by any given culture and taking the neo prefix to signify the contemporaneous mechanisms by which 
the classical is adapted to that culture. In other words, whatever is modern in the language of its own time, including the current vernacular. So it would seem that any neoclassical movement being in the nature of a revival implies something therapeutic, answering a need for revivification, right? But that's exactly the need we've been finding all along, that sickness unto death that has attended this century since its inception. In other words, by the time the post-war 20s arrived, the ground was all prepared for Stravinsky's neoclassicism, starting with that new object objectivistic re reaction to the excesses of the late 19th century romanticism. Even among those late romantics themselves, there was already a flicker of interest in the neo. Strauss, for instance, was tuning into Moliere's world with his bourgeois gentilhomme. Rager, even, was writing mammoth variations on Mozart. Even Busoni, Casella, Respighi were all convinced that they were somehow neoclassicists. And, of course, the young Prokofiev had already written his elegant classical symphony. So there was an all-round reawakened interest in Bach, Handel, Haydn, and other so-called classicists who had been all but swept away in the romantic undertow. And those bracing tonal fresheners were all standing ready to help, all those exciting syntactic breakups and pileups that we've been examining. Plus, the chic, sophisticated new focal point of Paris, with all its enfants terribles, Apollinaire, Cocteau, Picasso, Nijinsky, and the whole dizzy world of Diaghilev, all of this just waiting for Igor Stravinsky to come along and tie it up into a neat neoclassic package, which is exactly what he, he did. And here it is, that exquisite, dry, neo-Bachian octet from 1923. asymmetrical, it's just dissonant enough, a witty linguistic transformation of Bach into Stravinsky. But this neoclassic approach doesn't by any means have to be witty. It can be severely solemn, as in this piano concerto he wrote in the same year as the octet. say that's witty. And one of the most curious aspects of both of those pieces is that year of 1923 in which they were both written, so very different from each other. Does 1923 ring a bell with you? Do you remember from last time? It was in that year, if you recall, that Schoenberg, on his totally other side of the Great Divide, was presenting his serial concept for the first time in that Opus 23 piano piece I played you. And that was his version of the big save. So we suddenly have a clear, eye-opening picture of these two great masters in the same year, responding in their highly individual ways to the same crisis of the 20th century. Now, I think this is again a moment to invoke literary analogy, which we've so often found useful and enlightening in the course of these lectures. In fact, it may well be that the best way to understand the neoclassic movement 
is through a sidelong glance at poetry. The poetic situation in the early 20th century was remarkably similar to the musical one. There was the same feeling of, I've had it with the romantic excesses of such poets as Tennyson and Swinburne, to say nothing of the poet's laureate from Southey to Macefield. And so the ground was similarly prepared for the arrival of a poetic counterpart to Stravinsky, prepared not only by Les Enfants Terribles de Paris, but by a solid international phalanx in Russia, Mayakovsky in Italy, Pirandello, in England, the crazy Sitwell family, and in America, America, think of it, the new world which was musically so far behind the times as to be just discovering Brahms and Liszt, this same America was suddenly exploding with new poets, wild-eyed children of Whitman and Poe. Look at them, Ezra Pound, Amy Lowell, Hart Crane, Maxwell Bodenheim, E.E. E. Cummings, dozens of them, armed to the teeth with verbal tonality fresheners, polyphonologies, and supersyntactics. But again, it's a modernistical orgy. Here's one tiny example. Do you know this little poem of William Carlos Williams? It's called Nantucket. And it's not all that wildly modernistic, except for one thing. It doesn't have a single sentence in it, not a single independent clause. Flowers through the window, lavender and yellow, changed by white curtains. Smell of cleanliness, sunshine of late afternoon. It's the essence of Nantucket, bright and bare, like a clean, sparse painting. The point is that this poetic transformation has been achieved by a process of deletion, the deleting of verbs. It's a whole poem of subjects without predicates, a poem stuck still, a framed image, poetry for the eye rather than for the ear, which is why, of course, Williams was dubbed an imagist. He was also called a pointillist, an impressionist, accused also of post-impressionism, whatever that is. Do you realize how many isms we've had to contend with in our century, aesthetically alone, not to speak of socialism or fascism or communism? We are deluged with impressionism, expressionism, symbolism, futurism, vorticism, primitivism, fauvism, cubism, surrealism, motivicism, serialism. This proliferation of isms is clearly symptomatic of our sick century, of the many-faceted struggle to survive Mahler's apocalyptic prophecy by any or every means. Anything will serve in this struggle. As long as it seems original, modern, or as they used to say, modernistic. But a lot of it did turn out to be first-class poetry. For instance, here's another great warrior against doom, the irrepressible Cummings. Uh, this is a rather curious example of syntactic distortion because in spite of its helter-skelter look, it makes perfect grammatical sense, and it makes a deeply ironic anti-war statement based on the running gag of etc. He says, my sweet old etc. Aunt Lucy, during the recent war could and what is more did tell you just what everybody was fighting for. My sister Isabel created hundreds and hundreds of socks not to mention shirts, 
flea-proof ear warmers, etc., wristers, etc. My mother hoped that I would die, etc. Bravely, of course. My father used to become hoarse talking about how it was a privilege, and if only he could. Meanwhile, myself, etc., lay quietly in the deep mud, etc., dreaming, etc., of your smile, eyes, knees, and of your etc. <laughs> now, if this poem were rewritten as prose without changing a single word, it would turn out to be five excellent sentences, all syntactically valid, each perfectly set off according to the members of his family, aunt, sister, mother, father, and himself, right? But Cummings has transformed prose into poetry by typographical metaphor, by the odd punctuation or the total lack of it, by the apparently chaotic assortment of lines and stanzas, only apparently chaotic, it really isn't, uh, such as ending one stanza with et and beginning the next with cetera, as you can see there at the bottom, to say nothing of all those other et ceteras that make that beautiful dirty joke at the end work. And all these antics are the metaphorical devices that make it a poem. And we can see that the very lack of syntactic clarity through the mismatching of matter and manner creates an irony which not only makes mincemeat of his entire family, but greatly strengthens the anti-war sentiment. Besides, when we read it aloud, we instantly recognize that it has become not only poetry, but modern poetry, and poetry for the ear as well as the eye. Now, why have I digressed into all this poetic analysis? Is this just academic onanism? Well, I hope not. It's meant to give you a feeling of the boiling poetic situation that was awaiting the messianic advent of neoclassicism, just as the musical situation awaited Stravinsky's neoclassicism. You see, the ground is all similarly prepared. There's a perfect analogy. The ground is just waiting for its neoclassic master, in this case, of course, T.S. Eliot. Uh, what was it that Eliot brought to poetry that was so sorely needed and to which he brought to such a point of perfection? In short, why neoclassicism? It was sorely needed indeed because it was a security blanket for the whole literary world to clutch at in its sudden death-ridden distress. You see, we tend to view our century as so advanced, so prosperous and swift in its developments that we lose sight of its deeper, truer self-image, which is the image of a shy, frightened child, adrift in a shaky universe, living under the constant threat of mummy and daddy about to divorce or die. And so we must cover up we must hide our profound embarrassment and direct emotional expression. We can no longer say like Schubert, du bist die Ruhe, just like that. Or like Matthew Arnold, ah, love, let us be true to one another. We can't afford that luxury. We're too scared. Now can you understand the vital necessity, the life and death necessity of objective expression in our time? Between the 19th and the 20th centuries falls the shadow, as Eliot said. The new century must speak through a mask, a more elegant and disguising mask than any previous age has ever used. 
and it's the obliquity of expression that is now semantically paramount. Aesthetic perceptions are registered at a remove. They are, so to speak, heard around a corner. Uh, Eliot's first published poem was, as you know, a love song. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. What irony in the title alone. Where are the love lyrics? I remember Louis Untermeyer's old analysis of it, which went something like this. He saw the young Eliot writing, <laughs> let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, and then suddenly stopping, embarrassed. Two rhyming tetrameters, such old-fashioned romantic words, you and I, evening, sky, it could be Wordsworth. But then came the inspired save, like a patient etherized upon a table. A real football save, because it doesn't score directly, but it does prevent the opponent from scoring. And who is the opponent? Dreaded subjectivism. Direct emotional expression to be avoided at all costs. And Untermeyer called this save the triumph of the bizarre over the obvious. I thoroughly disagree. It is rather the rescuing of the obvious by the bizarre, if anything. It's all part of the great operation rescue, which consisted of filling in classical forms and styles with unexpected modern ingredients. Etherized, one-night cheap hotels. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. A love song indeed. It's a love song to youth, a threnody on growing old, again the 20th century disease. And the threnody is sung through the mask of a seamy, elegant lifestyle. Do I dare to eat a peach? Do I dare? Almost the mask is removed, but instantly replaced with another mask, that of allusion, of quoting from the past. He says, there will be time to ask, do I dare and do I dare? Shades of Othello, put out the light and then put out the light. Voices dying with a dying fall. Exact quote from Twelfth Night. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each, echoes of John Donne. We are now hiding behind the mask of once directly expressed emotion. And that is the beginning and essential meaning of neoclassicism. Of course, with the wasteland, Eliot's elusiveness with its mismatched semantics became a ding an sich. Oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. Boom. That says it all. That tells us everything. The tone is now set for the neoclassic save. Ezra Pound, the polyglot, can now interlard his cantos with Chinese and Greek and interlards that with jazzy jargon. James Joyce creates another polyglot masterpiece called Ulysses, which rests in the classic cradle of the Odyssey, but suckles on every style from Chaucer to Dickens to this morning's tabloid. And now Whiston Auden can spin his virtuosic rondos and villanelles and even limericks, spicing them with drama or doggerel as he chooses, resorting to the four-stress Anglo-Saxon line or even to the Ciceronian oration in which he couches Herod's hip and heavy disclaimer 
in the massacre of the innocents from that marvelous Christmas oratorio for the time being, saved by the bell, the good old reliable classical past. But the thing of it all is, and this is what's so extraordinary, the thing is that it's all so moving. Somehow that very indirectness, the very obliquity of expression, turns our hearts over inside us when we're in the hands of such masters as Eliot and Joyce and Auden. Because they speak for all of us frightened children, grasping for security in the past. Does it betoken an impoverishment of our resources that we must have recourse to the past? On the contrary, it reaffirms our links with the past, our traditions and roots. Only we disguise that relationship by coating it in our tough, cool vernacular. But it's a thin veneer, and when the underlying emotion does shine through, then it hits us with double force, precisely because of our shy, frightened attempts to hide it. Again, we're face to face with the ultimate ambiguity, living and partly living, rooted and partly rooted. Remember, just as we found last time with Schoenberg? And so it is with Stravinsky, too, in his utterly different way. The one, Schoenberg, tried to control the tonal chaos of modernism through his 12-tone method. The other, Stravinsky, through the decorum of neoclassicism, exactly like Eliot. After this intermission, we are going to hear and see, to witness really, the most awesome product of Stravinsky's neoclassicism, Oedipus Rex. I will, of course, try to prepare you for listening to it in my customary way at the piano, but for the moment, let me give you an epigraph for this work, something to ponder during the interval. And again, this is Eliot, the mature Eliot of the quartets, speaking for himself, for Stravinsky, for all creative artists of our apocalyptic century. He says, so here I am in the middle way, trying to learn to use words and Every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure because one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. And so each venture is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate, and what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate, but there is no competition. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. One has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say, or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. Thus spake T.S. Eliot. 
Now rewrite that as one has only learned to get the better of notes for the thing one no longer has to say, and you have Stravinsky speaking. He is no longer disposed to say, I love you, straight out from the heart, or for that matter, I hate you, or I miss you, or even I defy you. And yet it's all in his music, including some of the strongest emotional statements ever made in music. Pride, submission, tenderness, the fear of death, and the love of God. How is this possible, especially in his neoclassic music, which is the extreme case, the very model of that objectivity, that obliquity, that mask we've come to know so well? This is the great question of our time, the one question that must be answered before we can understand the real significance of Oedipus Rex, of Stravinsky in general, of his enormous influence on 20th century music and the very condition and future of music itself. The question can be stated more briefly, though oversimplified, namely, is great art still possible in our century of death? It's a staggering question, and in trying to answer it, we can be led into endless discussions of the most abstruse kind but we have no time for philosophical maundering, and so I propose to cut through the forests of heavy discourse by a direct visual approach. Do you recall those parallel ladder charts we used long lectures ago to help us discover how music and language ascend from their basic elements to deep structures, which then evolve into surface structures? You will recall that these ladders of ascent were not isomorphic, that is, that at a certain point, the one-to-one -one correspondence failed, and that was at the point of surface structure, which in language is the prose sentence, of course, which is not equatable with music, since music, as you can see, is still deep structure, as so-called prose. Language, therefore, had to take a further step, a metaphorical leap into the super-surface structure of poetry. And it was only then that the two aesthetic surfaces matched and we had finally achieved a level on which the words of Shakespeare and the notes of Mozart could be seen as analogous. Now, I propose to extend this wild hypothesis of mine by taking yet another leap on both sides of the chart at once. If we take the two top levels as our starting point, the two aesthetic surfaces of language and music, and urge our minds still further on upward, and we need imagination to do this, we find ourselves on an even higher metaphorical plane, perhaps the highest there is, on which we can almost touch the essential being of both poetry and music. We are now beyond surface analysis, or even supersurface analysis, beyond phonology, beyond syntax. We are into new areas of abstract semantics. And it's on this plane of thought, a transcendental plane, if you will, that the concepts of musical thought and verbal thought become comparable, where musical and non-musical ideas can coincide. And it's because this level exists that I was able to talk to you last time of Mahler's Ninth Symphony in the way I did. That's what I meant when I said a different level of discourse. But this level exists only in the case of such art as Mahler's, art which has that special power and inner creative energy to attain this philosophical level. 
Now, Mahler's music, and in fact, all the music we've heard and discussed throughout these lectures, from Mozart and Beethoven to Ives and Ravel, whether intrinsically or extrinsically metaphorical, whether purely symphonic or programmatic, all of it has been only music. That is, we've never dealt with music which sets a verbal text, neither a song nor an opera. And thus, the semantic elements we've been examining, however extra-musical they may have been, as in Berlioz, for example, Romeo and Juliet, those elements were always confined to that right-hand side on the level of musical surface structure. Now, for the first time, as we approach Oedipus Rex, words and music, we are facing semantic elements from the left-hand side, and they will not only be comparable with their companions of the right, but must now merge with them. And this union is possible only because we have reached this supra-level of abstract semantics where concepts do coincide. And the expressive success of that union is obviously going to depend on the well-matched compatibility of the semantic components coming together from both the left and the right. In other words, a composer setting words to music seeks those notes which he considers most condign to the semantic values of the words he is setting. Now, these well-matched components, verbal and musical, can be found happily married throughout the history of music, but particularly in the romantic music of the 19th century, when, as we found in an earlier lecture, the great wedding of words and music took place. For instance, a Schubert song like Du bis die Ruhe, which has been on my mind throughout this lecture, I don't know why, is a perfect example. The semantic components of Schubert's incredible melody and those apparently simple harmonies express all the tenderness and serenity of love in fulfillment, exactly as do the words of Rückert. Du bist die Ruhe, der Friede mild, die Sehnsucht du, und was sie stillt. And these identical ideas, musical and verbal, not the words and notes, mind you, but the ideas that they evoke can be shown to combine in perfect consummation and might be visualized thus. And it is here that the essences of Schubert's song exist as pure, abstract being, to use a platonic term, the pure idea of love, stillness, longing, and fulfillment. Notice that the meeting place of these two supra-levels is represented by a circle, by that perfect O, I don't mean to get into metaphysical uh, charts of the uh, airport bookshop type, but I am constrained to, if I want to be clear. By that perfect O, I mean to suggest a unity, which is also an infinity, a realm within which all our responses to art can converge. It's the meeting place of our innate and our conditioned responses on the highest plane, both in terms of thought and of emotion, so that our circle up there is also the realm of pure affect, by which I mean love in conjunction with its opposite, death. All other affective responses are derived from this single antithesis. And I suppose that was the supreme metaphor that Wagner was seeking in Isolde's Liebestod, the love death in Tristan, the ultimate synthesis of these two primal forces.
But what has all this to do with Stravinsky? Well, just stick with it another minute and you'll see. Wagner tried to create his metaphor and succeeded by introducing into that supreme circle particular semantic components from his poetry and his music, components that matched perfectly. The love-death idea in Isolde's words correspond almost magically with the equivalent idea in the music. When she says, ertrinken, versinken, she does literally seem to be drowning. Her voice is submerged in the sea of orchestral texture that's surging around her. And when she sings the word wellen, you hear waves. And when she's pouring out a progression of sexual verbs like schwellen and schlürfen and wogenden, you experience them musically in the orgasmic pulsings of the orchestra. Okay, enough. We now know what well-matched components are and what can result when they unite. But what happens when ill-matched components meet in that circle? What happens is Igor Stravinsky. Stravinsky with all his musical incongruities, the modern with the primitive, tonality with wrong notes in it, one chord fighting another, rhythm against rhythm, the contradictions of asymmetry, of street vernacular dressed up in white tie and tails, of classic forms filled with contemporary stylism, and classic styles and contemporary forms. Name it. Name a mismating. Stravinsky's written it. His works are an encyclopedia of misalliances. And what do all these mismatched components produce? Indirection, obliquity, the indispensable mask of our century, the objectified emotional statement delivered at a distance from around the corner and perceived, so to speak, secondhand. Secondhand. Stravinsky, that consummate original, yes, secondhand. Because the personal statement is made via quotes from the past, by alluding to the classics, by a limitless new eclecticism. And this is the essence of Stravinsky's neoclassicism. He is now the great eclectic, the thieving magpie, la gazza ladra, unashamedly borrowing and stealing from every musical museum. And this quasi-plagiaristic principle supported his compositional style for over three long decades in one way or another. It could be as overt as in Pulcinella, which is all based on actual pieces by Pergolesi, transformed by Stravinsky's personal modernisms, if you will. Or in Le Baiser de la Fée, a ballet where the same machinations are wrought upon Tchaikovsky's music. And in between those come all the neoclassical works <clears throat> from the octet of 1923 to the Rake's Progress of 1951, which may not boast direct quotes, but have equally strong stylistic references to Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. Think of Stravinsky's two symphonies, the violin concerto, the piano concerto, all those Balanchine ballets. There's some composer from the past lurking in every page, leering at us through the dissonance of Stravinsky's own 20th century language. What's going on here? Some kind of joke? Exactly. Some kind of joke. Jokes, imagine, right up there in our supreme magic circle where those mismatched components are busily copulating. Remember, what's funny is what's incongruous. Remember Groucho. 
and what's funny can bite deep. Remember E.E. E. Cummings. That was a serious anti-war poem. See, there are all kinds of jokes. The humor continuum ranges all the way from slapstick burlesque through sardonic wit, through elegant satire to black comedy and chilling dramatic irony. And it's all to be found in Stravinsky. In the most serious sense, humor in one form or another is the lifeblood of his neoclassicism. And I'm not talking about elephant polkas. I'm talking about his greatest, most sublime works. Look, here's a joke. And I assure you, it's nothing to laugh at. This is how Stravinsky begins his Symphony of Psalms, one of the most sublimely moving works ever written. In this opening movement, he is setting Psalm 101 in Latin. Ex audi orationem meam, Domine. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplication. Now, can you imagine how Schubert or Wagner would have set those words? Humble, supplicatory, introspective. I don't know what I'm playing, but something like that. Hushed, awestruck, well-matched components. But not Stravinsky. He attacks. A brusque, startling pistol shot of a chord, followed by some kind of Bach finger exercise. How mismatched can you get? It's the very antithesis of the Schubert-Wagner approach. It's loud, extrovert, commanding, and that's incongruous. It's a sublime, dramatic joke. It's a prayer with teeth in it, a prayer made of steel. It violates our expectations, shatters us with its irony, and that's precisely why we're so moved by it. It's exactly what we found happening in Eliot. In his wasteland, for instance, the same mighty irony when he's invoking the image of Shakespeare's mad Ophelia, her last words before she goes to drown. But he does it this way. He says, Good night, Bill. Good night, Lou. Good night, May. Good night, Tata. Good night, good night. And only then he says, Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. Chilling shattering, neoclassic, and thus Stravinsky. Yes, there is that imploring Phrygian incantation in the voice, in the chorus, but underneath Chromium. It's a trick, a black joke. In this sense, we've got to admit that our old friend Adorno seems to have a point. Stravinsky is a trickster. It was Schoenberg, of course, who was supposedly continuing the great subjective tradition of the Romantics in the only way he knew how, by his 12-tone system. And it was therefore Schoenberg who was the real radical, the true progressive. It was Schoenberg who was the totally sincere one fighting the fashionable trends of the 20th century. Sincerity is not supposed to be a 20th century thing. It's not chic. And for Adorno, that's just what Stravinsky was, chic. He was a facile virtuoso, a clever vaudevillian, a talented 
ballet composer parading as a symphonist, a thieving magpie, and the most unforgivable sin of all, he didn't restrict his thieving. He was an eclectic. He wrote music about other music. Music about music, and therefore, says Adorno bitterly, music against music. Musik gegen Musik. Stravinsky's own aesthetic pronouncements, I'm afraid, don't help much to defend his case. With that intellect of his, one of the sharpest and most agile minds of our time, Stravinsky kept painting himself into a corner of aesthetic purism. Way back in his autobiography, <clears throat> he insisted that music could express nothing at all. I think I could quote a few lines of that. Music is essentially powerless to express anything at all, whether a feeling, an attitude of mind, a psychological mood, a phenomenon of nature, Expression has never been an inherent property of music." Unquote. Now, by this token, he would have to mean that all verbal instructions by Beethoven, for example, written into the score, were useless and supererogatory, or at the very least, redundant. If Beethoven, for example, marks the slow movement of his Hammerklavier sonata, adagio sostenuto, appassionato e con molto sentimento, which of course he did, all those, he is simply committing a four-way tautology. All that slowness and sustainedness and passionateness and sentiment should be contained in the notes themselves, right? And self-evident through the notes, needing only a mere metronome mark to indicate the tempo and a minimal number of dynamic indications for loudness and softness. But this clearly does not jibe with Beethoven's volition because of what he wrote. Nor, ironically enough, does it tally with Stravinsky's own expressive volition. Just open the score of that great neoclassic symphony of Psalms, and what do you find? Right in the middle of a severe Bach-like fugue stand the words dolce, tranquillo, espressivo. Espressivo! Good Lord, it's enough to make you give up aesthetics for good at least Stravinsky's aesthetics. But of course he was forced by the evidence of his own music to hedge over and over again on that famous statement I quoted, to modify it and rephrase it. And even so, there's still this further contradiction. If his musical philosophy was so puristic, why was he so attracted to the theater, so devoted to the ballet, to the setting of words, all extra musical elements? If music can't express anything, well, but why go on? The crucial point of all this is that both Stravinsky and his Adornish detractors refused to acknowledge the power of that X factor up there in the magic circle, the extraordinary power of dramatic irony that could be generated by those egregiously ill-matched components. Stravinsky tried to deny it, but his music insistently confirms it, right? We are grabbed by that music. There's no escape from it. As for Adorno, he simply failed to perceive it at all, seeing it only as cleverness, showbiz, theatrical know-how, which was also true in a way, but not seeing the real meaning, which is the amazing proximity of comedy to tragedy in our time. He completely missed the joke, the big existentialist joke, which is at the center of most major 20th century works of art, namely 
the sense of the absurd. And now we are finally ready to understand Oedipus Rex. I had originally planned to present it to you in all its awesome grandeur as a refutation of Adorno's attack. My defense of Oedipus was to be based on frankly showing the tricks for what they are, exposing them as eclectic incongruities up there in the abstract sphere. I hate to use this jargon, but we're stuck with it. Uh, misalliances up there in that circle that create ever more intense dramatic irony, ultimately producing a work of Aristotelian pity and terror by wholly original means. For example, the initial misalliance of setting the Sophocles Cocteau text in Latin, of all things, a dead language, not even in Greek, another dead language, that would be too close to the subject, Latin, deliberately done to create a distance and objectivity which results from making the text completely unintelligible. Well, you can't get more objectivistic than that to write a whole musical drama, a combination opera oratorio lasting 55 minutes in which the audience can't understand a single word. Then I was going to point out endless quotes and allusions to specifically classical or pre-classical composers, like these overwhelming opening bars where the chorus is imploring Oedipus to deliver Thebes from the plague. <coughs> Now, those four notes are like the head of a Bach fugue subject, but rendered stark and uncompromising, much more than they could be in Bach, by the modern so-called dissonances used against it. And when Oedipus responds to his people and says, children, I will deliver you from the plague, is this not the melismatic sound of 17th century opera, or even the later opera seria? Could be Rameau, or maybe Gluck. And then Mozart appears. What could be more, more Mozartian than the beginning of Crayon's aria, where he sings pure classicism, not even a wrong note in it, which then gets the neo-treatment, slight case of wrong notes, when he sings And what of Jocasta's great aria, beginning with this Handelian recitativo, and later when she's railing against the oracles what have we got now Bach, Gluck, Rameau, Handel now she's yelling against oracles don't believe the oracles Whose rhythms are these in the accompaniment? Oracula, oracula, mentita sutoracula, oracula, oracula. 
Whose rhythms? Well, do I have to tell you? Beethoven fifth, right? So that fifth symphony transformed by modern metaphor into But the illusions are by no means limited to the classical composers. They can be much more eclectic. Remember that in this neoclassic world, anything can pass for classical that the given culture chooses to regard as such. Now, the main melody of Jocasta's aria, for instance, is rather like a hoochie-coochie dance and uh, might well have been one of Carmen's sexier moments. No. But what's to say that can't be in Carmen? And this is a queen, mind you, addressing the royal family. What a misalliance is there. And what of the chorus hailing the queen's entrance? Gloria, Gloria, Gloria. Shades of Boris Godunov. But this eclecticism knows no bounds. The allusive references can land anywhere, even outside the areas of symphony and opera. Consider this aria of Oedipus, where he is singing of his determination to find out the awful truth of his origins. Listen to this. Is that a march or a Russian Kazatsky? Or a horror from Tel Aviv? And what happens when that old shepherd who brings Oedipus the awful truth, the great news. And he sings, <laughs> Now that's a genuine Greek dance. Not the Greek of Sophocles' time, but the, the bazooki Greek, or belly dance music that you could hear in any Greek restaurant. I've heard that a thousand times in uh, Greek restaurants. And what about that hair-raising chorus that tells the grim news of Jocasta's suicide and Oedipus gouging out his eyes? This isn't exactly what you'd expect to hear at this grisly moment. It's more like a football song. Good Lord. <laughs> now, all this I had planned to tell you, and more. In fact, I even went ahead and made a deep structure for that last chorus I just played, a deep structure that captures its hidden quality of a fight song on the football field. I even went to the trouble of having the Harvard Glee Club record it, so uh, I might as well play it for you anyway, even though it's part of everything I'm not telling you. Here's the way it goes in Stravinsky's version. In other words, the surface structure. Listen. More accents.
Okay, now here's my extrapolated deep structure, so to speak, what we might call a prose version of that. And I promise you this is the last deep structure I'll ever extrapolate. You think that's funny? <laughs> I assure you, you won't think so when you hear Stravinsky's finished product. It is a joke, true enough, but a black, ironic joke, bitterly and violently ironic. So all this is what I was going to tell you, but won't, because last week I opened Stravinsky's score again, after a year away from it. And when I reopened that monumental score, with my hands trembling with reverence and awe, I experienced that same phenomenon of restudying, that new vision, the same phenomenon that occurred last time with the Mahler Ninth, you remember. It was suddenly a new work to me. And as I played those opening bars at the piano, something about those four notes began to chafe at the back of my mind. Not a Bach fugue subject, but something from another dramatic work, another tragic situation, totally different from this, but somehow similar. And I began to rack my brain. What was it? Gluck, Purcell, Weber, Wagner. What are those four notes? suggesting a different but related dramatic complex, pity and power. Over and over again, the chorus keeps repeating. Power and pity. And then intensifying the pity of it all, those appoggiaturas in Oedipus' reply to his subject. You remember when he says, Liberi, vos liberam. Now, what are all those appoggiaturas, those leaning notes, what are they all doing there? So romantic, so pathetic. And then I found those same appoggiaturas, strings of them, tension, resolution, tension, resolution, over and over again, in all the ensuing music sung by Oedipus. In his next aria, he sings, How about that? And then, later on in the same aria, he sings one of the great passages of the whole piece. Sing a soli, Carmen, Carmen, soli. Such pathos, such a broad, romantic line. And then, in Oedipus' greatest aria of all, Invidia Fortunam Odit, Envy hates good fortune. 
where Oedipus is pleading with the old prophet Tiresias for sympathy and support. He said, you crowned me king. I solved the riddle of the Sphinx. You should have solved it. You're the prophet. Well, I did, and you made me king. And he pleads, and he says to the old man, those pathetic appoggiaturas again. So romantic as to be almost sentimental. And then later in the RA he says, at the uh, climax, he shouts, it's a plot. He says, Crayon wants my kingdom. And suddenly I had the answer. That diminished seventh chord. You hear it? You remember that favorite tool of suspense and despair in every romantic opera? Ending with a diminished seventh chord and all those appoggiatures and the same key. What is it? It's Amneris pleading with the priests who are judging Radames. Same notes, same key, same appoggiaturas. So that's it. And suddenly, I knew why I had started this whole lecture by playing the ballet music for Maida, thinking at the time it was just an amusing way to introduce the question of sincerity in music. Amazing, the power of the unconscious. So accurate in its metaphors, so on the nose. But of course, sincerity is the whole point of this Oedipus Aida misalliance. Why Verdi, of all people who was so unfashionable at the time Oedipus was written in the mid-twenties, someone for musical intellectuals to sneer at, and Aida, of all things, that cheap, low, sentimental melodrama, the splashiest and flashiest of all Verdi operas. Why? Then came the answer, the revelation, because I remembered where those four opening notes of Oedipus came from. I swear to you I'd spent a week looking for them, but now I knew, and the whole metaphor of pity and power came clear. The pitiful Thebans supplicating before their powerful king, imploring deliverance from the plague. Pity and power, an Ethiopian slave girl at the feet of her mistress, princess of Egypt, at the feet of Amneris, the shrine of power, imploring pity. Do you remember the scene? Amneris has just wormed out of Aida her dread secret. The slave girl loves Radames, as does Amneris herself. Yes, you love him, she says. He to me, but I love him too, do you understand? I am your rival, daughter of the pharaohs. I And here comes our indispensable diminished seventh chord as Aida screams, Pity, and here come the grade four notes. 
Have pity on my grief. It's true I love him. But you're so fortunate, so powerful, and I have only this love to live for. To of a kind, personal and intimate, to be transformed by the metaphorical operations of Stravinsky's genius into a huge, public, monumental plea for pity. <laughs> Was Stravinsky having some secret romance with Verdi's music back in those super sophisticated mid-twenties? It seems he was. Or maybe he just happened to catch a performance of Aida at the Opéra in Paris. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that somewhere deep in his inner musical consciousness, the basic metaphor contained in Aida registered, stuck, and connected with the corresponding deep metaphor in Oedipus Rex. Again, it's the amazing power of the unconscious at work, not only connecting the two metaphors, but combining them into a single new metaphor at that abstract level of pity and power, a single manifestation of that primal antithesis, love and death. How could we possibly describe what has happened? Our words are helpless before such mysteries. They're only a a raid on the inarticulate, as Eliot said. We can only try to imagine this vastly complex interaction of metaphors and try to verbalize it as taking place simultaneously on the deepest level of the unconscious and on the highest level of abstract idea. My words are poor, my diagrams even poorer, but this one thing I know intuitively to be true, and I'll put my hand in the fire for it, that whatever that creative mystery is, those mystical matchings and mismatchings in that upper circle, it cannot exist or come to be unless it is inextricably rooted in the rich earth of our innate response in those deep, unconscious regions where the universals of tonality and language reside. The poetry of earth is ceasing never. It would be a very simple thing now to trace this unlikely marriage of Oedipus and Aida, page by page, diminished seventh by a poggiatura, and believe me, there is such an analogy on every page of the whole score. But I think we've gone beyond that point now. It's time to hear the work. And whatever few words of summary I have left, I will save for after the music. But only one last little point I'd like to make. I don't mean for you to listen to Oedipus Rex with Aida in mind. That would ruin the experience for you, utterly spoil it. What I do want is for you to hear it in terms of its universality, of that communality of abstract idea 
which permits the union of such unlikely bedfellows as Stravinsky and Verdi, of classical tragedy and romantic melodrama, of direct subjective expression, and of neoclassic objectivity. And I will leave it to you to decide whether this work is a bag of tricks or one of the enduring masterpieces of all time. You, spectators, are about to hear a Latin version of Oedipus the King. I shall recall for you the events of the story as we go along, in order to spare you any effort of ear or memory, especially since this opera oratorio preserves only a certain monumental aspect of various scenes in Sophocles' drama. Oedipus, without knowing it, is grappling with those unsleeping forces that watch us from a world beyond death. At his birth, they set a trap for him, a trap that you will see close. This is the drama. Thebes is a demoralized city. First the Sphinx, now the plague. The chorus implores Oedipus to save his city. Oedipus has conquered the Sphinx. He promises.
This is Creon, brother-in-law to Oedipus. He has returned from Delphi, where he consulted the oracle. The oracle demands that the murderer of Laius be punished. The murderer is hiding in Thebes. At whatever cost, he must be discovered. Oedipus boasts of his skill in solving riddles. He will discover the murderer and drive him from the city.
Oedipus questions the fountain of truth. Tiresias, the seer. Tiresias avoids answering. He knows now that Oedipus is being toyed with by the heartless gods. This silence irritates Oedipus. He accuses Creon of coveting the throne and Tiresias of being his accomplice. Revolted by this unjust attitude, Tiresias makes his decision. The fountain speaks. This is the oracle. The murderer of the king is a king.
The dispute of the princes attracts the attention of Jocasta. You will hear how she calms them and shames them for raising their voices in a stricken city. She does not believe in oracles. She proves that oracles lie. For example, an oracle predicted that Laius would die at the hands of a son of hers, whereas Laius was killed by thieves at the crossing of three roads between Daulis and Delphi. Trivium. Three roads. Crossroads. Remember that word. It shatters Oedipus. He remembers how arriving from Corinth before his encounter with the Sphinx, he killed an old man at a crossing of three roads. If that man was Laius, what then? Oedipus cannot return to Corinth, for the oracle has threatened that he would kill his own father and marry his mother. He is afraid.
queste trivio. Ego senem cecidi, cum corinto excedere, cecidi in trivio, cecidio casta senem. to the murder comes out of the shadows. A messenger announces that Polybus, king of Corinth, is dead and reveals that Oedipus was only the adopted son of Polybus. Jocasta understands. She tries to draw Oedipus back in vain. She flees. Oedipus supposes that she is ashamed of being the wife of a parvenu. This Oedipus, so proud of discerning everything, he is caught in the trap. He is the only one who does not see it. And then the truth strikes him. He falls. He falls all the way.
And now you will hear that famous monologue. The divine head of Jocasta is dead. A monologue in which the messenger describes Jocasta's death. He can barely open his mouth. The chorus takes over his part and helps him to tell how the queen has hanged herself and how Oedipus has gouged out his eyes with her golden brooch. And then, the epilogue. The king's caught. He wants to show himself to everyone. To show an unclean, incestuous beast. A parasite. A fool. He's driven away. His people drive him away with great tenderness. Goodbye. Goodbye. Poor Oedipus. Adieu, Oedipus. We loved you. Yeah, it must be good, go in, 
Valedico. What better cue could there be for a valediction? And I have indeed finally come to the valedictory moment. And I don't like it. I'm beset with conflicts and problems. There's still so much to be said and no time for saying it. There are so many of those underlying strings, if the linguists will pardon me, waiting to be tied up. So many cans of worms have been opened and a lot of those slippery little beasts are still wriggling around. There's much further argumentation and clarification to be accomplished, enough for at least six more lectures. Maybe there'll be six more someday, or sixty more. Perhaps you'll give them. I hope. But my main problem now is that there are still summaries to be made, conclusions to be drawn, the present musical moment to be generalized upon and the future to be guessed at. All of this is clearly impossible to achieve in the five minutes I've allotted myself for this farewell address. So I must take a short cut. Let me condense my feelings into a sort of credo. I believe that a great new era of eclecticism is at hand. Eclecticism in the highest sense. And I believe it has been made possible by the rediscovery, the re-acceptance of tonality, that universal earth out of which such diversity can spring. And no matter how serial or stochastic or otherwise intellectualized music may be, it can always qualify as poetry as long as it is rooted in earth. I also believe, along with Keats, that the poetry of earth is never dead as long as spring succeeds winter and man is there to perceive it. I believe that from that earth emerges a musical poetry which is by the nature of its sources tonal. I believe that these sources cause to exist a phonology of music which evolves from the universal known as the harmonic series and that there is an equally universal musical syntax which can be codified and structured in terms of symmetry and repetition. And that by metaphorical operation there can be devised particular musical languages that have surface structures noticeably remote from their basic origins but which can be strikingly expressive as long as they retain their roots in earth. I believe that our deepest affective responses to these languages are innate ones, but do not preclude additional responses which are conditioned or learned. And that all particular languages bear on one another and combine into always new idioms perceptible to human beings. And that ultimately these idioms can all merge into a speech universal enough to be accessible to all mankind. And that the expressive distinctions among these idioms depend ultimately on the dignity and passion of the individual creative voice. And finally, I believe that all these things are true and that Ives' unanswered question has an answer. I'm no longer quite sure what the question is, but I do know the answer, and the answer is yes. I leave you 
with that yes and with my thanks and my warmest affection. <laughs>